Leon Zwire, privileged to be speaking with you this morning. Thanks so much for your time. I thought we'd open up our discussion with the current business and economic environment. You've been involved in the legal industry and involved in Australian corporations for many, many years now. What's your sort of sentiment on, on what you're seeing on the ground? First, for the legal profession, it's been an active couple of good, good couple of years. I mean, the legal profession's been very lucky. I think it's a profession that's managed to thrive through COVID. Um, in terms of, of our own practice, I think we've been fortunate because there's been a push towards experienced, commercial, savvy lawyers and advisors at times of initially existential threat. And so for us, it's been, a, you know, it's really been ironically a time when we've been busier and working harder than ever before. So it's been positive for us. In terms of business, I mean, again, um, I have a particular interest in restructuring. We've seen very little major restructuring work in Australia for the last couple of years, which is ironic because I think everyone thought it was going to come with a rush and there just hasn't been that kind of rush in, in restructuring. Um, I think there's general optimism now that COVID seems to be managed a little better. We're opening up our borders um, and, and I think there's a, there's a sense that um, it's going to stay that way. And I think people are more optimistic, particularly for 22 and onwards. So, I, I, you know, the outlook I think is positive. One of the major themes that I do want to ask you about is this rise of activist investors. We've seen that trend over in the States over many years. Haven't seen it so much in Australia, but it is starting to creep through. What's your view on their role and their impact? There is clearly a role for shareholder activism in the marketplace. I've no problem with that. Um, and there is nothing wrong with um, strategic approaches to corporations about how they might do things differently or better. I think the trend that we've seen and we've experienced extensively has been, you know, um, shorting and distorting. That is the creation of reports which are at the margins, a uh, little opportunity given to a company to respond to it, the placing of, or releasing of those reports in a strategic way by people outside the jurisdiction and distortions which are large. And to me, that shorting and distorting is no different from you know, some of the old pump and dump strategies. It's the opposite of the pump and dump strategies. Both of them are repugnant. And I think regulators need to take an increasing role in curtailing that activity because it's, it's manipulating the market unfairly if, if a person puts false information into the marketplace. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is this tall poppy syndrome, so to speak. You've said in the past that every person you deal with has their good and bad characteristics. Do you think that Australia focuses too much on the bad characteristics of business leaders and perhaps not some of the good that they've done? Look, I think that we are culturally very different, say, from the Americans. The Americans, and again, restructuring is, is one great area where the American um, restructuring and bankruptcy provisions are all built around the fact that in a capitalist society there's going to be failure and therefore we have to accept that failure will arise and we don't punish failure, it is just part of a capitalist system. Of course, by contrast, the UK and Australian restructuring world was built around, you know, debtors prison and if you don't pay your debts, you get locked up and, and they're punitive. And so we have a different cultural approach to restructuring for the Americans. And I think the same in business. In America, if you've gone broke and become a billionaire, you're a hero. Um, here, um, if you've gone broke before, it, it's very difficult to come back from that because of the opprobrium that's associated with the failure at the outset. But the failure might just be a business failure, not dishonesty, 
not poor judgment. It may be a failure because someone's moved into the wrong part of the market at the wrong time, or they've over-levered their balance sheet, or they've got involved in some dispute. Um, I, I think in Australia, we tend to cut down our, our tall poppies. That is, if anyone who is highly successful has a failure, whether it's personal or in business of any kind, it's distorted and exaggerated. And you know that, that's just part of our culture. I don't see it changing in the near term, but it's, it's a problem with, with the culture in Australia. In terms of staff retention or hiring staff, how are you finding that issue at the moment in terms of there was a report recently that basically said that fifth and sixth year, I think, law graduates can go and earn double that in the States if they're working at, at one of the tier one or tier two firms. How do you manage that and, and how are you finding new staff coming into the business? Look, um, it, it is always a challenge um, because a certain percentage of your brighter um, staff will want to work overseas. The way we've always managed it is to create the opportunity and, and we recognise that not everyone sees coming to Arnold Block Liebler as the sole um, pursuit in their careers. That is, it's a choice um, that they have and it's a, it's a period of time that they want to uh, be with us. So long as they are committed to being the best lawyers that they can be while they're with us, then we will ap absolutely encourage them into different, into different paths and different directions. So we would assist them, we would facilitate them through that change so long as they were the best lawyers they could be while they're with us. We have to, at ABL, though, um, create a stimulating, interesting, challenging environment so that what, what they will experience while they are with us is of such interest and of such complexity that it will cause those who, who are capable of, of, of understanding that complexity to say, you know what, I'm in a pretty good environment, maybe I should stay here a little longer. And, and we're remarkably placed because our practice is eclectic. We, you know, we attract, obviously, the largest percentage of high net worth Australians um, as clients, and we learn by osmosis, and they are brilliant people by and large. Um, we, we represent many companies um, when they've got, you know, kind of bet the company problems. We've represented senior politicians when they've had problems. We've been involved in native title claims, public interest work, major transactions. And what we need to do is to actively engage with our younger practitioners and to give them a place at the table where they're not just pen pushers, they're not just going through documents. They have a role to play and a contribution to make. And bear in mind that the, 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 the leadership of ABL, the most senior of its partners, we were in those positions from a very young age and we are absolutely sensitive to the fact that if we want to continue with success, we have to give our younger practitioners that opportunity and in that way we are different from other law firms and we offer a different kind of positioning, which I hope in the longer run will not only attract people to us but will get us to push through that, that issue you talked about. Before we move on, it must be said that your daughter, Rebecca, made partner at ABL earlier this year, if I recall correctly. How are you finding career progression and career opportunities for women coming into the business or coming into the legal industry at large? Look, um, I am very proud of the fact that my daughter is here, but I just want you to know, although we work together, she has absolutely nothing to do with me. And, and she works in a different group in a different um, department. In fact, um, after some victory where I send an all-staff email about some great result, you know, often the only result I get is from my daughter who will write back saying, vom.com, Dad, <laughs> which when I asked her to explain what that meant, she said, in your language, vomit, um, which didn't make me feel all that good. Um, so, um, so, yes, Rebecca's here, but we don't have anything to do with, with each other professionally. Um, in terms of women in the profession, obviously it's changed. 
Um, you know, we are taking larger numbers through our graduate program than ever before. We are obviously cognizant of the fact that, that you cannot go lower into the brain pool because if you do that, the quality of the firm will deteriorate, deteriorate over time and, and by and large, our better graduates over the last few years have been women in terms of percentage. We've had more women come through and they will be nurtured through the firm and I think the opportunities are greater. I mean, I think we've grown up a lot. We understand the importance of providing maternity leave, encouragement, support, job sharing. These are concepts which I'm embarrassed to say, you know, back... 30 years ago, I probably had a very different view about. But, you know, we mature, we grow up. At ABL, we've been very fortunate. I think we had a partner called Leonie Thompson, who, of course, um, championed the rights of women in the partnership and in the law. Um, I think the first time she spoke to me about unconscious bias, I spent some time explaining it wasn't conscious, and she responded by telling me that's why it's called unconscious <laughs> bias. Um, but I learned a lot from Leonie, and, um, and I'm proud to say that I'm a convert. And as you know, converts are zealots. Let's talk about, and let's just change tack for a minute and talk about Leon Zweier, the person. As I understand it, your father emigrated to Australia from Poland and when he arrived here in Melbourne, set up an army disposal store. Tell us a little bit about your family background, if you could. So, so both my parents um, fled from Europe and they were very fortunate to get out before the Second World War. You know, as Jewish um, migrants, they were fortunate. Um, but of course, you know, many members of their families died through the Holocaust and we grew up in a Holocaust milieu. Um, and the Holocaust survivors were very focused people, very smart people, very direct, very capable. And I've always thought that it's been one of the benefits I've had in, in, in Australia and having worked with so many of them because they were so focused, so hard at issues so clever in the way that they understood things. So they understood options well before options were understood by the market. And it was in that milieu in which we grew up at ABL. So, you know, we, we had a great opportunity. Um, and again, um, you know, I think that one of the reasons I probably became a lawyer is that my father had an opportunity to go on and study law, but he never did so because it was more important to put food on the table for his family. And that, that was his parents, not his children, I, I get. All of us would make huge sacrifices for our children, but would, whether we would make the same sacrifices for our parents is a, an, another issue. Well, he did that for his family, and I think that it always um, resonated with me that that was something that he did for his family, because if he had his time again, he would have loved to have been a lawyer. But that wasn't to be, and, and I guess, you know, me and um, my siblings, we've, we've all had the benefit of education and everything that education brings, and we've had the benefit of, of, of living in Australia with such freedoms and with the ability of, to, to, to dream of a, of a greater country and a greater world, which was very different from the background I came from. So you attended Mount Scopus Memorial College. You were a keen cricketer, I believe, growing up. Tell me about Leon's Zwyer, the student. What, what interested you? Look, um, I was not a particularly good student. It's fair to say that... Um, I tended to be um, non-conformist generally. Um, I tended not to fit into the usual patterns of, of, of behaviour. And, and I should correct something. I, I was not good at cricket at school. I only discovered um, cricket in about year 11 and fell in love with the game, but I was hopeless, <laughs> hopeless. I played for a team called um, Caulfield Heights. If you know anything about Caulfield, you know it's completely flat. And we packed, picked our batting order with a deck of cards because we were all equally hopeless, but we loved the game and had a great time playing in the YCW lowest division. Um, but we enjoyed it greatly, and I've had a lifelong interest in and passion for cricket from those days. 
You attended, uh, I think it was Melbourne University, was it? We studied law and graduated around about 1980. Why, why the law? What interested you about the law? Look, as I said earlier, um, I think that I was attracted to the law because of the, um, my father's interest in it. I, I don't really know the answer to it apart from that. I wanted to be a lawyer from when I was about five years old and I never varied. I never changed my mind at all. In fact, I remember apocryphally my grandparents used to tell me that, that I, I gave that answer from when I was very, very young. I wanted to be a lawyer. Now, whether it's connected to Perry Mason or some t television show, God only knows, but, but I, I always wanted to be a lawyer and I always felt it was going to be my calling and I never doubted that I would be a lawyer from a very young age. As I understand it, in the 1980s, the, the fields of practice that you were involved in and interested in being insolvency and bankruptcy and, and liquidation were sort of seen as the unattractive fields. Nobody really wanted to do that sort of work, yet you were interested in it. Why, why was that? Look, um, that observation you make about me and the, and, 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 and the work in Australia is, is true of the global markets. So if you speak to the older restructuring guys in London or New York, they'll tell you it's exactly the same. The bigger law firms regarded as sort of undertaker's work. That is, you're picking over the corpse of an entity. I never saw restructuring work that way. I always saw restructuring work as preserving entities, saving companies, saving employment, saving intellectual property. And so I, I saw this huge opportunity where, where there was a, a negativity about it. That is, it was a very very structured, rigid, conservative part of the profession, but I saw enormous opportunity in it to do good work. And, and, and you know, obviously the markets have changed significantly since the 80s, but, but, but eventually the market caught up to that kind of thinking. Fast forward to 1991 when you were recruited to ABL by then partner Joe Gersh. Tell, and I think you're aged about 33 or 34 at the time. Tell me about what you found when you came to the firm and, and what made it so successful and, and attractive to you. Um, look, I, I guess the starting point is that at, at, at Barker Cosling, which is the firm I came from before, before ABL, I was a lion in the mouse's den. And the way I would describe it is that when I got to ABL, I discovered I was a mouse in a lion's den. And so that fairly describes the, the, you know, the, the kind of impression I had when I arrived. You know, the, the standard of ABL was significantly higher. The intellect was phenomenal. The, you know, I, I, I used to marvel at the exchanges at the partners meeting. It was a powerful team of star individuals around the partners table and you needed to be on sure footing when you ventured into an issue or had a view to express because it was a very willing debate. And I think it was the late Alan Goldberg who said, if you can deal with the ABL partners, your, your opponents are a, a breeze. <laughs> and, and I absolutely agree with that. But, but you learn by osmosis. And so, you know, my greatest trepidation before I joined ABL was whether I'd make the standard at ABL. Um, and, you know, I guess um, now looking back on it, I'm, having been here for 30 years, I suspect I have, but, but at the time I was fearful I wouldn't. And it was just remarkable how commercially focused they were, how sharp they were. As I understand it, one of your earliest cases that you were involved here with ABL was Brashes in about 1994, which was one of the first major appointments working alongside Cordamentha. Tell me about that particular case. Uh, well, again, um, Brashes was a seminal corporate failure. You know, in 1993, voluntary administration was introduced into the Corporations Act. In 1994, Brashes was the first public company to collapse and go into voluntary administration, and no one knew anything about it. 
No one understood how it truly worked, how meetings would be conducted, how votes would be tallied, how creditors could be bound by a, a deed of company arrangement. It was novel in every single respect. Now, um, it wasn't quite Cordomintha in those days. It was Arthur Anderson, um, because Cordomintha didn't exist. But, but it, it was new. And we saw a, a, a unique opportunity to champion the, the forging of voluntary administration by doing something bespoke and remarkable. And, and so, you know, just by way of example, up until Brashers, there had been a conservative view about retention of title claims. That is, if, if there's a retention of title claim, you go to the Supreme Court, the court determines whether the claim is good or bad, and, and that's how that issue was determined. In Brash, we had 120 of them, and I used mediation to resolve them by putting mediation obligations into a deed of company arrangement, which was unheard of. We use the media to promote the idea. I think Steve Bartholomew has played a key role in promoting that idea. And so by, by introducing mediation into the resolution of uh, you know, retention of title disputes, we saved millions of dollars in legal fees and created the opportunity for Brash to survive. So there were, you know, it, it was great. And I've always thought that Brash was the turning point in the market. That is, when other law firms realised the prominence the work got that we'd done for the administrators, they showed a real interest in it. And that's when the market swung and people began, began to, th to think it is worthwhile moving to this area of law because it's creative, it's commercial, it's pacey, and, and, it, and it gets a lot of um, notoriety. Now, another major case that you did work on this time with... Uh, with Cordamentha was the collapse of Ansett Airlines in 2001. Tell me about your involvement in, in that case. Came involved in, in really helping um, the union movement change um, the administrators to Corda and Mentha. Um, and, and, I, and that was really helping some labour lawyers um, who frankly knew nothing about corporate reconstruction in general and voluntary administration in particular and we helped facilitate the change that brought them in and then of course I too changed from representing them to, to representing the administrators. Look, it, it was again another seminal case. It was, it was uh, you know, I, we didn't realise, but the airline industry attracts such incredible media, such incredible coverage. And Ansett was, was, you know, iconic in the Australian landscape, and the collapse occurred two days after 9-11. So the world was in turmoil. And here you've got an airline that collapses. It's been around from inception. You know, at its peak, it had 53% of the Australian aviation market, and it's collapsed. People were trapped on their holidays in September of, of, of 2001. It was just such a seminal moment. So, it, it, you know, it was another remarkable opportunity to use relatively new provisions to try and save an iconic business. When you look back at that time today, how close was the Tessner Consortium to rescuing ANSEP? Would it, would it, was the deal ever likely to happen? Look, I think the deal was likely to happen. The real problem with the deal was complexity. That is, when you've got leased aircraft assets and you've got leased engines and you've got leased terminals and you've got um, a moving workforce, um, it was complicated and it re required a high degree of risk um, for a purchaser to take. And in, and in relation to a process that was not well and fully understood. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, looking back on it, it was too early in the cycle. I think that part of the reason that I think Virgin went through with very similar kinds of risk is people understood the risks better, the market was different, the market was more sophisticated, and certainly the purchaser was a very sophisticated player and distressed. You know, Solly Lou and Lindsay Fox were not distressed traders. 
They understood an opportunity and they understood the value of the infrastructure assets. I mean, frankly, had they bought it, I'm sure they would have been very successful because, you know, they would have acquired the Sydney Airport Terminal, which is a major piece of infrastructure. You only need to look at what's occurred in recent times as we're talking to know how valuable that infrastructure was and is. Now, no interview with yourself would be complete, of course, without exploring the infamous Richard Pratt v ACCC case in 2007. Tell me about the case and your argument as the defence. Look, um, to me, the, the, the case was always one, you know, that breaks into two, two discrete cases, actually. The first is um, a cartel proceeding that was brought against Vizzy. Um, it was resolved on terms and it was settled um, and... You know, without commenting on the, the, the good or the bad about it, it was settled and a significant penalty was paid um, and that was the end of it. What occurred subsequently, of course, was the ACCC then elected to prosecute um, Richard Pratt for lying um, in relation to evidence he'd given, which to this day I don't think Richard lied about. I think that, that he answered a question truthfully. But to sue um, someone for falsely denying, which is their case, um, the commission of a wrong is, is just horrendous. It'd be like saying to, a, to someone, and I'm, I'm only using this as an example, um, who's picked up for speeding, and he says, all right, I, I, you know, I, I deny I was speeding. I've never met anyone that, that ever says they were speeding when a cop says, were well, you speeding? To then give them a ticket and say, now we're going to charge you for lying to a policeman when you denied that you were speeding after you've agreed to pay the, 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 the fine. And so it's wrong at its core. It's wrong at its core. And worse than that, worse than that, and using the, 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 the speeding ticket example, when the, when, when the person who gets a speeding ticket says, is that it, if I pay the ticket, it's all done, it's all over, um, and the cop says, well, of course it is, he's actually made a little note to himself saying, now I'm going to get him for lying as well, and he doesn't tell you that when you agree to pay the ticket to bring it to an end. And that's what was so horrendous about that case. And, and you know, again, the other thing that, that, you, you, know, that, that you need to understand is the sole evidence upon which they relied on, uh, to, to bring the prosecution was Richard's settlement of the cartel proceeding in which he made admissions solely to get rid of the cartel proceeding with an express agreement that could never be used against him and they then used it against him. And the case was thrown out not because Richard was unwell. The case was thrown out because the judge said that evidence could not be used against him. Once the evidence couldn't be used against him, there was absolutely no case. It's the equivalency of someone using my speeding ticket example, someone saying to the, to the, to the court, all that stuff about the cop and, and the interview and the denial can't be used. Um, once that happened, of course, there was no case to answer. And Richard was fortunate that, that he knew in his lifetime, shortly before his death, that this erroneous prosecution had been terminated. And it, it obviously was emotional, it was highly pressured, but it was very important for Richard for him to know before he died that this wrongful prosecution was over. And what did it mean for you? Most of my case is really about money. And so, um, and, and money is fungible, money is understandable, money is workable. But this meant a lot because I was acting for a dying man, wrongly prosecuted for a crime he'd not committed, who wanted to know that it was over, um, before his life was over. And so there was a lot of pressure and, and, and a lot of emotion. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that, that he was able to have it dealt with and have the court throw out the evidence um, before he died. In fact, to, to the credit of the federal court, 
when I asked him for an indulgence and told them he was so terribly ill, the court bent over backwards to give him that ruling. Um, I didn't know what the outcome would be, of course, when I asked for the indulgence, and he received it. And as soon as he received that ruling that there was no evidence, that's when the prosecution died. Um, since then, of course, the ACCC, or Graham Samuels ACCC, spun it that the, the case was withdrawn because of Richard's ill health. They'd known about his ill health for well over a year. That's just absolute bunkum. As I understand it, that case really fractured parts of the community with some sides never talking to each other again. I think for the first time since that uh, case, you put out a post earlier last week on, on LinkedIn about uh, you'd agreed with Graeme Samuel for the first time since 2007 about the new appointment for the ACCC chair. But what impact did that have on the, on the community? Obviously, you know, um, Graeme Samuel had a lot of connections um, in the community. And, and there was, um, you know, there was a lot of conjecture about why did this happen, and was it someone trying to prove that they were more holy than the Pope um, in the way they went about it? But, but you know, there, were, there was just a lot of disappointment. It just shouldn't have happened. It was wrong in principle. I don't think it was anything more than that. And uh, you know, whether it was Graham Samuel or any other regulator, I think there would have been antipathy to any head of the ACCC who had brought a prosecution in those circumstances. Um, I think that that you know. Richard always described it as Graham Samuel's ACCC, which highlighted Graham's role in it, of course. But, but frankly, it, the, the antipathy would have been directed to any leader of a regulatory authority that brought about a wrongful prosecution. Um, I won't get comment about the, the um, other prosecutions that were involved in, because I think they may fall into a similar category, but um, that's all it is. Just before we move on, what was uh, Richard Pratt like as a person for, for those of us who you know, didn't have the pleasure of, of meeting him? Brilliant, theatrical, charming, sharp, difficult, um, <laughs> provocative. Um, he, was, he was all those things and he, he, he created great spirit when you worked with him. You know, he, you, you know, you never, you could never predict where it's going to go on anything, which made it so challenging. I, I think it was a great privilege working with him, and and you only need to look at all of his or talk to any of his executives to know how much they just were so fond of him. You know, they would have walked on hot coals for him because he was just an inspiring leader, and it was all natural with him. It, it just came to him so naturally, and he was so entertaining and amusing at the same time. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is you've represented Liberal and Labor politicians, which you mentioned at the start. You've represented unions and big business, Tony Abbott and Bill Shorten, some pretty polarising people there. How do, you, how do you go about being able to work with both sides of politics without annoying you know, power brokers in, in each respective party? Look, um, we're professionals and we give legal advice. We are not giving political advice to political leaders. They've got a myriad of political advisers and, and colleagues to give them political advice. But if there's a, a discrete legal issue, they come to us to deal with that legal issue. And they know that as professionals, we always do our best. Now, that kind of issue is replicated through business. You know, in Brashes, we talked about before, that all of the landlords were affected by Brashes becoming insolvent. But we're a firm that represents many of the landlords. So we're on the one hand representing landlords, on the other hand we're representing the tenant. Or, um, you know, we've, we've worked with Zip for a long time and we've worked with Afterpay for a long time. Two rivals. But, and we do, you know, we have different groups and, and obviously we're very careful to set up appropriate information barriers. But the fact that we act for different entities that might be competing with each other is commonplace. So it's no different politically. It's the same issue 
but in a, but in a different form. But it arises all the time. You know, if we act for one bank and, 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 and two banks and they compete with each other, there's no issue about that. So uh, to, to the world, it might seem remarkable because of the politics, but, but to those who seek legal advice, um, I don't think they have any difficulty with it. I thought we'd close out our discussion with a few questions, general interest questions. What's your assessment of the legal market here in Australia, particularly with regard to litigation funding and the, and the rise of litigation funders? Um, look, there, there, there's obviously been a massive um, influx of litigation funders into the marketplace. It's had a profound impact. We've seen a proliferation of um, many class actions um, of late. Um, and now we're seeing an attempt to kind to bring about some regulation in relation to it, which is much needed. Um, you know, the, the, the difficulty for um, defendant companies, of course, is it's just a, a question of working out, frankly, what the potential liability is and then what the prospects are of getting that outcome. And therein cri creates a problem for the defendants because you know, insurers will always take the view you're better off paying an amount of money that represents a better outcome than, than a kind of probabilistic analysis of, of a worst outcome. Um, and that's how the market flourishes. It's driven up the cost of insurance. It's made it prohibitively, prohibitively high for um, companies to get side C cover, you know, directors and officers cover too. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's, it's very expensive. I'm hoping that we'll see the pendulum swing back a little um, now with some of these re regulatory changes and other changes. And I think the government should be commended for it. How do you go about developing effective client relationships? Well, I think... It, it, all, it all begins with ability. I think the marketplace is quite discerning and I think the marketplace knows better practitioners from worse practitioners. And, and so that means it's all about ability um, as a lawyer to start with. And, you know, we, we pride ourselves on a commitment to the black letter of the law and a good understanding of it. Um, second, I think, um, in our case, we've always said, but, but, but there's always a commercial overlay to everything. There's, you know, Obviously, regulatory proceedings are different and, and prosecutions are different, but there's, by and large, there's a commercial overlay and the better lawyers understand that commercial overlay and are not wedded to process or adherent to the black letter of the law as they analyse the commercial outcomes. And again, um, as you asked me a little bit, bit about our roots and where we come from, well, I came from a world, you know, post-Holocaust kind of world of new migrants wanting to get ahead in business. And so... Around the table, everyone's talking about business, business opportunity, how it, how it fits in, where they can go, how there are opportunities, dislocated markets, property. And so I grew up in a world where business was being talked about all the time. So it's second nature to me, the business. And what I, as a young child, what I realised is lawyers are only a service provider to a commercial world. And so I think that analysis has always helped us. Third, um, our structure here is different from other law firms in that we're not about building pyramids. Our whole business, we, you know, we're lean and we're mean. We have senior partners involved in doing the work with a very small group, and our model is all about fixing the problem as soon as we reasonably can, and we're confident that the void created by fixing that problem will be filled by, by more work. And that, that's proved true over tens of years in my case, and it will continue to prove true. But, but it's the antithesis of, I think, some of our competitors who, who, who are happier um, for the, the, the ongoing models because they're adherence to the law. That is, you know, they'll want a court to determine outcomes, whereas we will always say there's, there's a parallel path. You know, 
there's always a parallel path to litigation and, and one path is always the path of resolution and the other is going to court and you need to make sure that you focus on both paths and not one. For those watching that are interested in your career and interested in emulating your success, what are the, the fundamentals that have made you the person that you are today? Um, well, well, first, um, it, I, I hope it's obvious, I'm, I'm obviously very passionate about um, the practice of law and I think I'm very fortunate to be a lawyer. Um, second, I think, you know, I, I adhere to the, the principles of, of most professional practice firms, which is, you know, clients' interests are always number one, partnership interests are number two, and my own interests come third. And I think that that's, you know, fundamental to, to the professions, whether you're an accountant, a doctor, it's always got to be clients, patients first, um, and your own interests last. Um, and, 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 and the trades as well, you know, what is a painter's house always have the worst paint job of any house in the street because the painter's always looking after his customers. And, and that's the key to it. Um, I, I also think, um, you know, having a voracious appetite for hard work helps, and I, I've always liked hard work. I think the harder you work, the luckier you get. So, you know, hard work's a big part of it. Um, next, I'd say um, surrounding yourself with some really smart people. And I'm not just talking about our clients who I spoke of earlier. I mean, we've been blessed by an incredibly capable client group, and you can't help but to learn from them by osmosis. But I'm talking about the partners of ABL. I mean, as I said to you, when I arrived here, the talent around the table was just breathtaking. Um, and so it's, it's in, the, in, the, in the partnership. Then it's the, uh, the, the bar. You know, we've worked with some of the greatest legal minds at the bar, many of whom have gone on to become judges and very successful judges. And so we've had that benefit. We've then had the benefit of, of a successful client base that can afford to work with the best accountants, consultants and advisors. And so again, um, we have the benefit of their input um, all the way through. And, and so we're being educated every day that we work by some great people. And so, you know, I, I, I think that in large part that probably just summarises my view of, of why I and we have been successful. And my second last question is outside of work, given you know, you have to work so hard during the week, you've got so many cases on the go, you're representing so many clients at any one time, how do you, how do you switch off and actually have some downtime and then arrive fresh for the next week of work? Look, look um, I, I try to do things outside the office that, that are completely mentally stimulating to take my mind away from the work I've got on. So I'm, I'm a passionate skier. I love snow skiing, I, you know, I love it. In fact, on my wall, you'll see a, a, a map over there. I'm proud to say my greatest achievement in the law is having a ski run named after me, and that's courtesy of Reno Grollo, who, who was very generous in doing that. But skiing to me is a, is a great release because you focus on it. Boating, I love boating for the same reason, because when you're boating, there's an element of risk to it. You know, that is, if you're going out into the ocean, you've got to navigate, you've got to plan, you've got to watch the winds, the tides, the currents. And so again, it, it's cerebral. That is, I'm constantly evaluating those things. And of course, family. You know, um, uh, hanging with your family is, is um, very leveling. I think I told you the story about my daughter with vom.com. You know, I've got four children and, and you know, grandchildren. And so you know, they, they're a great leveller. You know, I could be dealing with the Prime Minister, but they don't care. <laughs> you know, if I say something stupid, they'll tell me it's stupid. Um, and so hanging with family is, a, is, is obviously a great thing. And friends. Um, and, and, you know, my friends are obviously from more diverse backgrounds than, than the law, and so I enjoy their company too. 
And just finally, what does the next chapter look like for Leon Zwei? I understand you've got a few personal investments that you've made in platforms like Superhero and, and that sort of thing. What, what do you see the next five or ten years being like? Um, well, I'm still as motivated and, um, and keen to continue practice as ever, but I think the next phase has to be to take some of the brighter young partners and really bring them to the very top of the profession, and that's my goal. My legacy will be reflected by the number of partners I've been through, and I've got some superstars in the firm. I, you know, Elise Hilton, who I work with here in Melbourne, is just an absolute gun. You know, Jonathan Milner and, and Susanna Ford and um, Stephen Lloyd and Sydney, to name a few, are just brilliant. They're in my group. I think they are phenomenal. What I have to do is I have to make sure that I can help nurture them, lead them, encourage them and mentor them so that their careers will exceed my own, which, which based upon talent, should. Um, so, you know, that, that's very much part of what I see as a future. Um, I do want to do more work in public interest. Um, I'm, I'm involved with the Bradman Foundation, which is absolutely brilliant to me. I, I mean, I, I'm just thrilled to be part of it. And I think that the Bradman Foundation can leave a greater mark on Australian society than it's left to date. Um, I'm delighted that um, Greta Bradman and, and John Bradman are part of that, that group. They hadn't been for a long time. And I regard that 2021 as being a year where, where we've reconciled with the Bradman family, which is phenomenal to me, and um, I see great opportunity there. So um, I look forward to the second half of my career with excitement. Leon Zwei, a pleasure speaking with you this morning. Thanks for your time. Thank you.